Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church of Murfreesboro. It is an honor and privilege to share this time with you. We love studying the scriptures and feel they are central to our preaching, teaching, and living of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Our mission here is to grow disciples of Jesus Christ who know him, love him, and serve him for the transformation of Murfreesboro and the world. It is our prayer that God would use our preaching and teaching to do exactly that. If you have questions, thoughts, ideas, or just want to talk a little bit more about what you've heard today, we love to hear from you. Most of all, know that you are in our prayers as we listen together. Now, let's dive in. And we'll need John chapter 5, the fifth chapter of John's gospel, for our text in just a few moments. Uh, I didn't say earlier, my name's Drew Shelley. I'm one of the pastors here at First United Methodist Church and just glad to be with you today and uh, glad to be on this journey of breathing underwater the next several weeks as we uh, now are at the midpoint of our worship and preaching series, which tries to connect the 12 steps of recovery with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, we give you thanks for your life with us, in us, and among us. We thank you for your son Jesus who is saving us all. We are grateful for your word. We pray now for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to what you say to us today. Help us to listen carefully, to receive with joy what you say to us in this place. We ask it all in the name, the strong name of your son Jesus. And together we say, Amen. As I mentioned, we are at uh, week three of this Breathing Underwater uh, worship and preaching series, which is, I hope, helping us to uh, have a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ by tracking with the 12 steps which are known so well to the recovery community. We've talked about admitting our powerlessness over sin and brokenness. We've confessed our desperation for God to act in our lives. We've worked on surrendering our lives to this God who saves. We've made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And now we come to the fifth step today. We are invited to confess the exact nature of our wrongs to God, to self, and to another human being. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, I've talked with lots of friends who are in the recovery community, and I just want to say I speak as one who I am not in the recovery community. I probably should be, but I'm not, and so I'm, I'm learning as we go, learning from these dear friends, learning a lot about what it is to be in recovery and how very close recovery and salvation are uh, so, they're so related one of these good friends uh, told me that he was in the 12-step program for a year and a half before he was ready for step five. A year and a half. It's just the fifth step. Come on, you know, can you not kind of fast forward? No, you cannot fast forward to the fifth step. But I said, what took you so long? Why, why did you take a year and a half? And he said, well, I didn't think anybody but God needed to hear my confession. I didn't think it would make a difference 
for any other human being to hear the exact nature of my wrongs. And I wasn't crazy about disclosing the exact nature of my wrongs. And so I held out as long as I could. I held out as long as I could. Confession. Confession. It's biblical. 1 John 1, 9, James 5, 16, John 20. It's biblical. It's good. It's really good. Confession is great. It's also terrifying and scary when we put it into practice. I think about our last family trip to West Tennessee. Uh, we met my brother and his family at this little restaurant on the square in Covington. And I'll just say it was a tense gathering, okay? It was a tense lunchtime gathering. We did not all agree on where we would go. We were not all of one mind about eating in that place. My little brother just declared that that's where we were going, and so we all had to go there, and not everybody was in a good mood about it. The kids were wild. Ours had missed their naps, and so they were crazy. The place was short-staffed, and uh, it was not exactly the paragon of cleanliness that you would like to see when you go to a place to eat lunch, okay? In fact, it was just pretty bad. It was really quite bad. We had to wait a long time to, to be served there. The waitress was struggling. She was by herself. She appeared to be checking people out, taking orders, and cooking all at the same time. And there were maybe three other groups in there, but we waited and finally ordered. Shannon very carefully selected the one item on the menu that they had that Annabelle might eat. Anybody got a four- or five-year-old, you know how this goes, okay? She selected the one thing that Annabelle might eat. 30 minutes later, the waitress came back and delivered the bad news that they were out of the one thing Shannon had ordered. And so, I just changed it to tortellini. Will that be okay? Well, Shannon got a little testy with the waitress because uh, Annabelle won't eat tortellini. It's too squishy. It's too squishy for me too, frankly. But anyway... Shannon was not happy. I was very surprised. Shannon never, ever, ever, she's probably watching this at home, Shannon never does that, but she did on that day in that restaurant. I don't think anybody else noticed how upset she was, but I did, and I also left an extra $20 bill as an apology tip when we, when we left. I didn't say a word about it. I didn't dare say a word about it. Now, the next day, uh, we were driving back home, back up here, and I looked over. Shannon was searching furiously on her phone, looking at the map. I thought, what is she doing? I said, what are you doing? You know, I mostly I was upset she wasn't paying attention to me as I drove and gave a brief lecture on uh, power plant management in small aircraft. That's what I was talking about. And she was not, ran, she was not paying any attention to what I had to say about that. She said, I'm trying to find that restaurant from yesterday. I've got to find that restaurant. I said, why? She said, I must call and apologize to that waitress. I was so rude. I have to call. I said, Shannon, you weren't that bad. And anyway, I left a big tip. It's okay. Don't worry anything about it. Don't worry any more about it. She said, that's not the same. That's not the same. Confession. Confession. Something happens in confession that can, it can free and restore everybody involved. Those working through the 12 steps of recovery have been preparing for this cleansing and this clearing confession that paves the way, I believe, for God to do the real work of transformation which comes through the Holy Spirit. 
that friend of mine that I mentioned earlier, he, uh, after a year and a half of stumbling and bumbling, he finally made his confession. He had written it out. He made it to God. He made it to himself. And then he sat across the table from his sponsor at AA and made that confession. When he finished, his sponsor said just one thing, do you feel better? Do you feel better? That's all he said. Why would he feel better? Why would he feel better? Well, when you name these things, you have power over them. You can deal with them. You can take responsibility for them. You can make amends if that's what you need to do. You name them with a trusted friend, and then as you go forward, you have that gift of accountability in the future. This is what confession brings to us. It is a gift that God offers to us. In the church, after hearing that confession, you all know what we would have said. What would we have said? In the name of Jesus Christ, say it with me, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. That's exactly what we would have said. Jesus gave his people the ministry of reconciliation, which is this continual forgiveness, which is supposed to be part of our community life. Just one problem. It's very rare that we practice the ministry of reconciliation or the ministry of forgiveness. There are a lot of reasons the whole notion of confession seems like it ought to be handled by a pastor or a priest. And then, and then there is the problem of gossip, okay? That's a problem in most places. We've all shared a little too much with somebody only to hear it from somebody else over here and wonder how it got from A to B. We know how it got from A to B. That's just what happens. And then, and then which friend, which friend do you actually trust for this sacred and holy work, which is supposed to be part and parcel of the journey of salvation. Lots of reasons why we haven't embraced this ministry as much as prayer or communion or serving others, and yet to neglect, to neglect confession leaves us hamstrung as we make our journeys, missing something very important, something which we need in order to experience the deepest grace which God offers to us in Jesus. Let's hear again our gospel lesson for, from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Juliana read it once from a different translation. I'm reading from the NRSV. Let's hear the word of God. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethzatha, or Bethsaida, or, or there's several choices there in the earliest manuscripts. Anyway, it had five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? What did Jesus say? Yeah, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up. What did he say? Stand up. He said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once, at once, the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Let me tell you a little something about that pool at Bethsaida. Legend has it that an angel of the Lord stirred it up uh, once a day, and the first one in was healed. 
uh, after the waters were stirred up. In John chapter 5, we meet a man who's 38 years old. We think he's broken in some physical way since birth. All his life, he's been going to that pool, probably slept someplace nearby. His family likely would have abandoned him at a very young age because of his physical affliction. It was considered a sign of someone's sin in their family. He brought shame. Better to just send him away and let him die than to let his very existence stain that family's reputation or image. He's probably been at that pool 12,000 days. Can you imagine going to that pool 12,000 days? Watched 12,000 people get healed, which means he has missed the healing 12,000 times. Now, Jesus has the audacity to ask a worrisome question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Of course he does, Jesus. What do you think? He's been coming down there 12,000 days. He says, but I have no one. I have no one to put me in the water at the right time. And, And when I do get close enough to drag my lame self down near the water, somebody else does a cannonball right into the healing. All I get is water in the face. That's all I get when somebody else does that. This man reminds me so much of of me when I have gone in search of help and healing for the broken places in my life. There I am so close to the healing Jesus says, do you want to be made well? My answer, well, (laughs) no, actually. I'm just here to complain and criticize everyone else. I'm not quite ready. I'm not quite ready for the healing. If you could just come back, Jesus, come back in an hour or a week or a decade, I'll be here doing what I do (laughs) because I know intuitively down way down deep in my heart that your kind of healing, Jesus, your kind of healing requires transformation. And let me just confess, I don't know that I'm ready for all that. I don't know. The man doesn't answer Jesus He cannot answer Jesus. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. You can't blame him for having a one-track mind. If I could just get in the water, if I could just get in the water, we get this way too. Looking for that one thing, that one prayer, that one promotion, the one raise, the one thing that will make everything well. If I could just get in the water, if I could just get in the water, we can't see that it's not about the water. Not at all is it about the water It is actually about Jesus who meets us with words of power. Verse 8, stand up, take your mat, and walk. In doing this, Jesus restores our 38-year-old friend to life. He has something he's never had before. He can now fully participate in the world. He couldn't even go to worship before, now he can He couldn't work. He had to beg. Now he can earn a living. He couldn't be with his family. Now he can if he wants to go back to his family. He was a non-person in his day and time, and Jesus has spoken life over him. He is made well, made able, and invited to claim this sense of self and autonomy and responsibility that had been denied him for so very long. I think... The biblical discipline of confession and forgiveness, when practiced in a healthy community of faith, is one of the most powerful pathways to this healing 
that Jesus offers. But if we are going to put it to work, I think we have to talk plainly about sin, God's judgment, our judgment, and our misunderstandings about God's economy of grace. In other words, how God's grace actually works in the world. We have to talk about that because this old world has been built on the notion of retributive justice, retributive justice. It works like this. You commit a sin, there is some punishment, right? You do the crime, you do the time. That's how society works. We have classroom rules. You've got to have order in a classroom. Isn't that right? Every classroom, Jessica, has got to have order. You've got to have classroom rules. We know how that works. Even in our own families, the small children in my house, we have to set boundaries and make sure the consequences are still working because things change about once a month. Every full moon we have, it seems, Annabelle decides to push every boundary. We have to adjust and recalibrate. This is just how life works. We have to have this notion of justice, even if we call it retributive justice. We are immersed in this way of thinking. It makes all the sense in the world that we would also apply this to God's grace working within us and around us. We Western Christians have even created a little process that we think ought to work even in God's economy. It goes like this, sin, punishment, repentance, transformation. Say that with me. Sin, punishment, repentance, transformation. Let's go around again. Sin, punishment, repentance, transformation. That's how we think. The only problem is that is not grace. That is not grace at all. That is the merited favor of God. In other words, you are earning it, and you expect everyone else to earn it too, dadgummit. By the sheer power of your will, you are doing your own transformation. It is the merited favor of God. Now, what is that beautiful old definition of God's grace? The unmerited, the unmerited favor of God. God's world is built on the unearned favor and love of God, which is shed abroad in our hearts even before we come to believe a thing about Jesus. If we read the New Testament and even the Old, the process we should expect from God is this. Sin, unconditional love, transformation, Repentance. Can you say that with me? Sin, unconditional love, transformation, repentance. Let's go around again. Sin, unconditional love, transformation, repentance. This is what we actually find at work in the prodigal son. In the woman called in adultery, the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel talking to Israel in the ministry of Jesus, in Nicodemus, in Paul's teaching about grace. It's just throughout the story of God's work in Jesus. And if you think about your own experience with God's grace, doesn't this pattern actually fit better? Sin, unconditional love, transformation, repentance. Let's go back to Shannon and the waitress. My solution to the problem of Shannon's sin was very worldly. She did the crime. I paid the fine. Sin, punishment. That's how that worked. Shannon could have just repented and tried to transform herself. She could have. I'm sure she did. But who would have been left out? The waitress, right? What about the waitress? She's the one who was hurt. Shannon was moved by a very different conviction Rooted in the love of Jesus and the grace of God she has known in her own heart. She said, I have to call and apologize for being unkind, 
because that woman is a beloved child of God, and I did not treat her like one. Sin, unconditional love, transformation, repentance. It's different, isn't it? It's not how the world works. It's how Jesus works. It's very different. It's the same dynamic that we find when a good mama gathers up her exhausted child after some horrendous outburst that only a five-year-old can accomplish. Mama does what? Mama holds that baby until she falls asleep. Baby wakes up in those loving, God-like arms determined to do better. I can't help but wonder how our little community of faith would be different if we came to understand God's grace at work in this pattern and expected the same from each other. I suspect our ability to practice confession and forgiveness would grow so much and that those pathways to healing would just explode with compassion and hope for each other rather than judgment and condemnation. All of that gets us ready for the sixth of the 12 steps. And here's the sixth step. We are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. We are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. In the Christian faith, we think about our transformation, our healing We get all up in our minds and we try to walk the Roman road. We parse the scriptures looking for the steps. We make instruction sheets out of John Wesley's three types of grace. And all the way, we're worrying over one thing. Which comes first, God's grace or personal responsibility? God's grace or personal responsibility? Which one comes first? The answer is yes, they do. Yes, they do. God's grace, personal responsibility. The sixth step in our healing requires that we sit a while in this paradox as we come to find a truth so much deeper than our very mechanical efforts to explain God's free gift of grace. So, let's see what God will show us this week as we walk with Jesus hand in hand, imagining what it is to stand, take up our mats, and walk. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we give you thanks for the gift of your grace. We thank you for your life that fills our lives for the hope that we know in your son Jesus. We long for healing. We are ready to be made whole. And we confess, we confess together, there's a whole lot of stuff that we're ready to lay down so that you can be at work in our hearts and lives in the most powerful way. We love you. We thank you that you love us. And we're called to share that love with the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 